This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. When you hear the word divination, what comes to mind? Only 13% of adults said they consult tarot card readers, astrologers, or fortune tellers, according to a 2018 Pew Research survey. But market research shows that sales for tarot card decks and psychic services are growing. The practice of reading tarot is sometimes called cartomancy. It's the art of gleaning insights or even divination or fortune telling by way of pulling cards. The cards field questions like, what does this month have in store for me? How can I manage stress at work? And according to Pew, quite commonly, what's next in romance? This hour, we look into how the rise in the business of divination is being reflected in a rise in personal spiritual practice around the cards. Where We Live producer and resident tarot card reader Katie Pellico will be taking us through this topic with experts. But first, she joins me in studio to talk about how she first got started with tarot. Katie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Weird to be on this side. <laughs> I was just going to say, tables have turned for this conversation. So let's just jump straight to it. So how did you get into tarot? Pretty casually at first. Um, I got my first deck from a friend uh, just after college. I uh, abided by the, uh, there's a kind of a belief that you should have your deck gifted to you. Uh, although that's kind of been uh, done away with in recent years. I've I've bought my own decks since then. Uh, but yeah, it was pretty informal uh, and kind of communal. My process with, I would just read with friends. Uh, we would kind of learn, or I was learning with them, uh, kind of poring over books, interpreting the symbols, uh, learning the stories of the cards and how they speak to one another depending on where they're placed. I m became more intentional about it uh, in recent years. So I definitely want to talk more about the stories behind uh, the cards or if you have a favorite one, but how often do you read for yourself or for others? So I read uh, almost every day for myself. I try to pull three cards uh, and the symbols all kind of like meet one another and speak to each other and characterize the mood of the day. Uh, or, you know, what's to come. I generally don't ask a question. I just kind of let the symbols simmer. Uh, I'll leave them out or I'll take a picture of them and, and revisit it throughout the day. Uh, but I've been refining the practice of doing it for other people, um, especially people who I don't know, have never met before, or who don't have, um, or sorry, who have pointed questions for me. Um, I've taken some classes with readers to try to do better at fielding more pointed questions. Uh, one class I took really sticks out. The The woman I took uh, it with, her name is Courtney Weber. Uh, she is she honed her skills fielding like really pointed questions about when might this happen. And she was trying to teach us how to uh, interpret even like days or months out of the cards. So yeah, I, I think that was the point I realized uh, I'm not quite there yet. I don't know if I can answer questions that quantitatively. Um, but it just goes to show that everybody has a different relationship with the cards um, and, and the symbols in them. Well, I kind of really I love that a lot because it's a lot more interpretive, I think, than people think like and they have these like uh, preconceptions, maybe what the cards are supposed to be when they see a picture or or all of that, which I know you're going to get into with this show, which I'm very much looking forward to. But I do want to ask, because you're talking about, you learn about the storytelling behind the cards. So do you have a favorite card or deck? And, and you know, does that change day to day? 
Yes, definitely. The so first, I'll just say the decks themselves. They they all follow the same kind of a rubric. They're all seventy eight uh, cards in total, twenty two of which are the major arcana. Uh, the rest of them are the minor arcana. So the minor arcana looks like a regular deck of cards where there are four suits, uh, each of which represents a different element. And then the major arcana uh, is, I think, every tarot reader's favorite part of the deck uh, because it's these very aspirational, devotional symbols running from the fool to the world. Uh, so you might be familiar with those tarot cards. Uh, you know, death, the tower are some, some let's say, scarier ones. Uh, but there's also the empress. Um, yeah. So uh, my favorite deck is the mother piece deck. That's what I learned on. Um, and I would say my favorite card is the hermit. But that is a darn hard question to answer. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I don't think there's a, a right answer, really. And that, that's kind of what I mean, too. Like, does it change day to day, like the meaning of the cards for you? Definitely. Um, as I said, you know, the the meaning of my readings, my daily polls uh, evolves even over the course of the day. I feel like I'm always in conversation with the symbols. Um, you you definitely are building your own relationship with the deck, though. So someone else's interpretation of the hermit could be totally different uh, from mine. And mine might even differ in the context of two other cards, like the her- the hermit alongside the three of wands and the four of discs means something totally different than if it's next to uh, the tower and the the four of cups. And so, because I think this is such a such a personal thing mm-hmm. at the end of the day, you know, what do people usually use it for? You you mentioned there are people who ask pointed questions, but you also draw daily cards where you don't ask a question. So, is this a big question to ask? Like, what do people use it for in general? Yeah, I think that's a very exciting an open-ended question at the moment. I mean, the Pew Research you cited earlier from 2018 predates this kind of uh, resurgence of interest in spiritual practices uh, like tarot, like astrology even, although I would mention that astrology not only is far more mathematical and less interpretable, uh, but it's also, uh, it has the kind of spiritual origin story Uh, that tarot, we will be surprised to learn today, uh, does not, um, necessarily at least. Um, So the Pew Research showed that uh, predominantly questions about romance were asked um, and that most uh, people who sought out uh, tarot card readings or fortune-telling services uh, were women. But I would be really curious to see how that has changed. And I'd be remiss to not mention that I think the pandemic had a lot to do uh, with that uh, development and and growth of this market. And so what does learning more about the tarot look like? Because it sounds like you're not just learning about the literal cards, but you're also learning about yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there are some cards when I pull, I have such beautiful memories of having pulled them for friends and, you know, huge moments of their lives and you know, that's just one example of the kind of like experience that you build in to each card. Uh, but I would say most importantly, don't feel like you have to take a class. Um, it really does start with you and the deck uh, and that process of, of learning about yourself. Uh, I mentioned the devil and the death card, uh, and I often do to newbie readers just because that's, I call them the, the early jump scares of the deck because you really do go through uh, 
this process of confronting the misconceptions you have about these inherited ideas and even like the ways that gender is depicted in the deck uh, is a really productive <laughs> grounds for critiquing uh, how that might show up in your own life. Using the cards as kind of like a vehicle for incisive question asking and and not just when will my boyfriend come around the corner? You know, <laughs> but when will he come around the corner? <laughs> what about my fictional boyfriends? <laughs> and well, speaking about vehicles, uh, we are jumping on one right now because you are going to be pulling a card for me. Room for room. Hey. <laughs> uh, okay, let's let's do this. So we're just going to pull uh, one card. The anticipation is killing me right now. And you can see we're not we're you know sometimes I'll I'll say before I pull a card like this can just be for for this conversation. But uh, let's see where the the cards. I think take let's us. see where the vibes are. I, love I that. feel like that's what we're doing today. I trust that. Oh my gosh! What is it? The hermit. No, I love that. Yes, you're joking. Yes, this is happening live, people. I adore that. So, if you will allow me to expound a little bit on why this symbol is so perfect, please for expound. You and and arguably for what we do here at where we live. Uh, so, the hermit depicts a Virgil-like figure holding a lantern, um, and the connotation that you might ascribe to the hermit, you know, immediately take that away. Stop it. <laughs> because the hermit is no uh, curmudgeon. He, this figure does not live in a cave or under a rock. They know the power of not just withholding, but turning inward and yes, casting out the world and expectations, but in order to better fill one's role in service to community. So the the hermit is the writer, the creator, uh, again, the person for whom it is critical to dis distinguish one's purpose, one message, and uh, it's the audience and, and how it, it can transform things. So... Yeah. Well, I don't know <laughs> what can possibly be more perfect and kismet than that. And well, Katie, I'm super excited to learn more about tarot. So here I am passing the mic over to you to take us through the rest of the show. Thank you, Kat. And thank you for letting me read your cards. Later, we're going to hear from a professional tarot card reader and deck maker in our state. But first, Tim Young is a curator at the Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library. He's overseeing research being done right now on some of the oldest tarot cards in the world. I was very surprised to learn and a little disappointed about their not-so-spiritual origin story. Tim, welcome to the program. Happy to be here. Can you tell me, how did the, how did, uh, the Beinecke Library acquire these cards and when? Let's start there. So the Beinecke Library has mainly uh, literary uh, manuscripts and archives and rare books of all types. Playing cards are something that people might not guess would be in a collection, but if you think about them, they are integral to the history of printing. So there have been a few examples that have been at Yale for a long time, but the Great Leap Forward came in 1967 um, in the estate of a woman named Mary Flagler Carey. Um, she and her husband, who predeceased her, named Melbert Carey, were of means, so they traveled around the world, they collected many things, they also did great support for a lot of different sort of artistic and educational um, causes, but they were very much, I would say, almost obsessed with uh, playing cards. So they would like to get uh, as wide a variety of materials. So this whole world of like 
ephemera as well as, as uh, books about the, the rules and cards came to Yale in 1967 um, after um, Mary Carey passed away. Um, about 2,600 decks. Um, there are several hundred books and then a lot of boxes of these other objects, as I mentioned. And within them, there, of course, are examples of early tarot and taroki. Which lets our listeners know this categorization for tarot cards is is actually correct, that it's, it's a playing game and not quite the uh, divination tool we might know it as today. So can you tell me a little bit about why it was in that collection and, and a little bit about its origin story for use? It's uh, it's interesting to talk about this and very important because Hiroki really are the earliest example of cards in Europe. Um, if you go back to the very, very early origins of cards, it gets kind of murky because the documentation and the bits and pieces of uh, history that we have are scattered. But but in, in general, cards most likely came from um, China through trade routes to um, Eastern uh, Europe, what we, we call Eastern Europe now, but then also then to North Africa, then across the Mediterranean to um, the um, Mediterranean European countries as we know them now, including the states of Italy. So basically sort of the more modern kind of like a Western appearance of cards really starts to take place in 15th century Italy, actually in the form of the game of Tarocchi which is the sort of the very, very earliest um, sort of kind of fully formed version of a game. And it is what we would um, categorize as a, a trick-taking game. So like like bridge. So so Tarocchi was something that was actually played um, in Italy and then it spread through um, different forms in France and Germany and other um, uh, countries. And... Um, it basically sort of had this um, kind of like a development over about two, 300 years before we start to see it being used as a format for fortune telling. There's like a few historical notes that, that the card, the trophy cards, as well as other card sets were used in sort of parlor games where people would, would sort of like get a deck and like make up a story or or sort of tell a joke about the cards and, and use them for conversation. But um, in the middle of the um, 18th century in France, you get a couple of sort of um, landmark moments where there is an encyclopedia that comes out that claims that the tarot actually came from ancient Egypt. And in fact, it is divinely inspired that was somewhat made up <laughs> let's say that, that that sort of just appeared in the 18th century but then later what happens is that there's a um inventive uh writer and teacher um whose last name is um aliette who actually writes a book around the 1780s 1790s which um is about uh how to use the tarot deck to tell fortunes so we get this book in France that says, yes, it is, in fact, for this use, and here are some instructions. That takes off, and then through the 19th century and early 20th century, there's, by leaps and bounds, there are more types of um, tarot decks. There are other decks that come up that aren't necessarily actually from the tarot, but are used, again, for parlor games or for things where you might see somebody who as advertised as a fortune teller. So, um, but at the same time, people are very still actively playing um, Taroki 
in different uh, European countries uh, mainly. It's overtaken by Whist and Bridge as newer versions that survive. But I would say even now, if you go to certain um, places in Italy and France, you will find people playing a Turoki-type um, game using a traditional type of um, like 78 card set of uh, tarot cards. Wow. So that's a long, short story, very short. <laughs> that's amazing. And I, I can imagine that tarot practitioners today might be disappointed to learn that there aren't these uh, long lost spiritual, you know, or that there isn't rather that long lost spiritual origination point. Um, what have you heard, Tim, as the public well, response? Uh, the, the questions we get about the playing cards is that probably 50-50. 50% of folks are just wanting to know about uh, some type of a design ethic or where did this fit in in somebody's cultural uh, history. And then half of them are about tarot because it, it, it reigns very, very you know, high in people's uh, consciousness. It's in movies, it's in books, it's in you know, even modern games that we play. Um, but let me start by saying that, you know, it's possible for something that is very sort of tightly bound with history and has, you know, at least now 600 plus years of presence in our Western uh, lives to have multiple existences, right? It, it can be a card game and it can actually can also be used for something else. There, but nobody has a claim that it's exclusive you get people from the other, from two ends of the spectrum, they might actually have an argument about what might be the more pure sense of the, um, uh, or, or the most um, original intent. Um, and if you look at it, you know, um, the, the Trumps, they're, what an odd vocabulary, you know, the broken tower, the hanged man, um, for something like that to come together kind of like at a moment in um, early modern history, it's kind of strange. It's like, I would think, well, gee, there must be something else that went happened be, be behind this. But then when you actually look at those early years, those images are also drawn from other cultural sources that they, mm -hmm. that they weren't actually just invented 100%. They do relate to some heraldry and some imagery and some paintings. Um, so um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm playing the, the librarian sort of like um, middle path, like I always have to do, which is to say that many readings of these cards are like in the very sort of blunt sense as, you know, they're used for playing, they're used for divination, are actually um, uh, viable because they have their own sort of cultural worlds that support them. I love that. Wow. That's so fascinating. I have like dozens of questions just based yeah. on what you shared. But I want to make sure to clarify, first and foremost, yep. the cards you have, they're sometimes referred to as the Visconti Sforza cards, these original uh, yes. still in existence cards. Which does the Beinecke Library have? Um, so I, I'm glad you asked that question because um, the research that we're doing right now in conjunction with um, other holders of um, uh, parts of these decks. And one thing to point out too is that nobody has a complete deck um, as uh, through, through time and through um, sort of you know, uh, shuffling back and forth. That's no pun intended. A few cards were actually were lost or maybe sort of like given away or something like that. So what um, resides at um, uh, Beinecke is a set of 67 surviving cards out of 68. 
um, of a deck which was called Visconti Sforza, but that that name can be applied to three other decks that are, are held. So uh, for a clarification, we call ours our Visconti di Madrone, and Madrone was an owner uh, of them. So that places them there. Sometimes you see it online as the Visconti Carry deck or the Visconti Yale deck. And this is a um, a wide-ranging sort of powerful um, family in Northern Italy um, in, in the era from like the 14th, 15th and 16th century, but they are handmade and hand-painted. So, so they're one of the important things is that these cards are um, each like miniature paintings. We have 67, you know, beautiful paintings that are overlaid with gold and silver and lapis lazuli. Um, and they were made for um, really, really important ceremonial moments, such as a, um, a gift to a new couple being wed, um, along with other kinds of riches and um, um, presents. And they also, they, they sort of commemorate uh, some of the figures, some of the people on the cards are actually, you know, real historical figures that were in both families. They're wearing signs of the two families. Um, and um, so the, the cards themselves also serve the, serve the purpose of showing that's the joining of two, two families together, right? So it's consolidation of power. There's this entire historical, um, political family history um, story that's embedded in these cards and the team that is doing the work, which includes librarians and conservators, also has people who look at it through fashion history and the history of pigments and as well as um, the lineage of Italian families that were in power at the different sort of like city states at the time. So that, that's one of the beautiful things about a library. We want we want folks to see that a gorgeous piece or an innocuous piece is going to, um, if you question it, it's going to tell you this other story that you may not uh, realize um, it was holding on to. Amen. That's fascinating. Well, thank you so much, Tim, for your time today. Good to be here. Thank you. You've been listening to Tim Young, a curator at the Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library at Yale University. After a quick break, we'll hear from deck makers and readers where we live. Do you read tarot or do you want to know more about it? Join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. A lot of people struggle with sleep apnea and with CPAP machines. Dr. Carl Muller, a head and neck surgeon with Hartford Hospital, describes Inspire, a surgical alternative to the CPAP approach. Only about 60% of patients can tolerate CPAP real well. Inspire is a surgical alternative to CPAP. It's an outpatient surgery. It takes about two hours. And essentially what it does is it picks up when you're taking a breath and sends a two-second electrical pulse to the tongue, which causes the tongue to stick out a little bit and stiffen and prevent the airway from collapsing. Hartford Hospital has performed more than 200 Inspire therapy surgeries. If you've tried and failed with CPAP, you could be a candidate for this minimally invasive procedure. Patients with moderate to severe sleep apnea are candidates. There is a weight criteria, so you have to have a body mass index below 35, and you have to have to have tried and failed CPAP. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. I'm Katie Pellico. This hour, we're hearing from tarot readers in Connecticut. 
Our sister talk show, Seasoned, recently visited Tea and Tarot, an herbal wellness boutique in Madison, Connecticut, where our next reader often delivers stirring readings. That conversation is linked on our website at ctpublic.org slash where we live. Afton Williams-Jacobs, a.k.a. Monty's Tarot Child, joins us now. Afton, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So tell me a little bit about how you discovered tarot and developed your practice. Yes. Um, so it all really initially started with my cousin, Heather. She's the owner of Tea and Tarot here in Madison, Connecticut. Uh, she gave me my first tarot deck. And I really, I didn't understand the impact of her giving me the deck. I really didn't um, know what to do with it. And my curiosity hadn't necessarily been piqued to dig deeper because I knew that it was probably a whole process that I was completely unfamiliar with. Um, so it took me some time. She gave me the my first tarot deck in 2018, I believe. And it wasn't until 2020 when I actually started practicing tarot. Um, it started off with me being very like interested in YouTube tarot videos where you can pick your own pile and hear a divine message. Um, and then from there on out, I just, I've loved everything about divination and the occult and um, things of that nature. Yeah. Wonderful. And tell me a little bit, because you mentioned the word divination. And I'm just curious, you know, as you kind of uh, met the deck, so to speak, and and the, uh, developed your practice, uh, how did you think about, you know, how the deck might be used and what, if it's to be used for fortune casting, what does that look like? I, I do. I love the term divination because it is a simple enough term for people to understand um, that there is a connection between you and the divine. And that is the source that we all work with. Um, but I look at divination as a type of storytelling. Um, you have these characters through the tarot that help you to depict a story. And it is a story that oftentimes is very similar to what it is that the reader um, is presenting to the person receiving the reading. And it resonates with people, especially when you can pull from real life experiences and have it resonate to them in a way that they haven't seen typically. So I love to look at divination as like storytelling um, and helping people to piece together the parts that they feel like they're missing of the story. For our listeners who may not be familiar with what a tarot deck looks like, how what are some of those stories? How is the deck structured? Uh, and yeah, how did you kind of build an awareness of what each of those 78 cards are? Yes. <laughs> so when learning tarot, I thought that I had to learn the exact meaning of each card. And really, I think each card just brings its own essence. Knowing these things, knowing more so about the elements um, and also a little bit of numerology as well helps to just pick like it's all the pieces, all the symbolisms that you can find within the, the spread that is in front of you um, and connecting it again back to that storytelling piece. Um, so if you have all cups cards, you know that right now your um, relationships and your emotions are things that are in question right now. Or again, if you have all pentacles, you know that maybe it's your career that you're looking into or starting a new business or something like that like that. Getting into astrology is key as well because it's part of what I've found to be and you know tell me what what your feelings are on this a kind of a resurgence uh mm -hmm. of interest in spiritualism and even this kind of like pop culturization of astrology and tarot. 
Uh, what's your perspective on that? I think that there is a huge difference between distraction and devotion. Um, and I myself have waned in, in between that in regards to like when I first started with tarot and like really looking for self-improvement and self-guidance and like, oh, I like, I only have this life and I have to get it absolutely correct. And um, I think as I have gone through this and, you know, as I've helped other people and received divine messages from other people as well, um, it's not a rat race. So when it comes to the spiritualism and spirituality um, becoming trendy, I feel like first of all, you have to find what works for you. So my way is not going to be replicated or be the best way. Like my approach to giving someone a reading may not always resonate with everyone. Um, so that has a large part to do with energy and what someone is looking for. Um, but I think that spirituality is such a gift. Um, it is such a gift to be able to be reminded, to be present. And I think that, you know, there should be an intention that one is seeking um, in order to be connected deeply and not because you want, you know, just because you want your life to be better or you feel like certain, like spirituality will bring certain things to make your life better. Um, it's really about the reminder of your human experience and that you're alive um, and really uncovering what that looks like. Um, outside of trends. How would you, as we're talking about the kind of popularization of, of these practices and, and why that may be a good thing, um, what has your experience been of the community specifically in Connecticut where it concerns tarot or even astrology and spiritualism more generally? I have found the biggest spiritual community actually within Madison, within Madison, Connecticut, mm -hmm. uh, within my cousin's shop. And of course, I, I will boast about her. I will boast about what she has created because it is amazing. Uh, to be Black-owned, to be woman-led, to be queer-led, um, I'm astoundedly proud of her. And I feel like the community that she has gathered around her, just based on her energy and based on what she's wanted to provide, um, it has blessed me in so many different ways. When I was taking my practice more seriously. The best thing that I ever did was to, yes, join within the community that I found there with her um, and really grow a strong confidence in my gifts and my abilities. So uh, tell me a little bit about uh, your practice, Afton, and specifically because we talked about this a little bit, but how would you differentiate, if at all, your practice reading for yourself versus reading for clients? Uh, I feel like <laughs> The longest. My wife has been, she has been my muse. She has been the person I've been able to really test my intuition with uh, because for the longest time I would pull cards for myself and then I'm like, I don't even know what this means. Like, I don't know what the cards are telling me. It was more so of that like aimless, like, oh, I gave her a reading. So now I should give myself one too. Um, and I felt like it was harder for me to zoom out of my own perspective and see what it was that I was possibly subconsciously asking. Um, so I feel like I've come a long way uh, giving myself readings and like really sitting down and saying, you know, how do I feel like these cards are applying to me or what have I not been willing to see that the cards are willing to show me? Um, and for other people, I feel like I have grown also in my confidence just overall. 
um, trusting my intuition and knowing that one way or another, what I was supposed to do was done and kind of just like leaving it at the table and not bringing it back with me to pick apart and say, well, maybe I should have said this this way, or maybe if I would have rephrased it a different way, it would have resonated more and I would have seen more of a reaction. Kind of just like having to pull my energy back to myself and, um, and ground myself. And I've gotten a lot better at that, I think. Speaking from experience here, getting a reading from you, you do this beautiful weaving of tarot with oracle decks, which uh, our listeners might not know the difference between those two. So can you, an expert, Afton, uh, let us tell us about that difference? Absolutely. Um, I feel like some people may disagree with me, but I feel like Oracle uh, has the opportunity to give you a much richer and deeper um, experience of your reading. I think tarot helps you to target in what areas are we looking into your life today? And the Oracle, based on someone else's intuition that decided to create this unique experience, you get to have these bite-sized messages. Again, like you said, weaved together. Um, it's It's almost... <laughs> I'm a foodie, so it's almost like receiving a, a, a course, a course of a meal where you get to try all these different things and it makes an experience that is specifically for that person. Um, because I've given a numerous amount of readings and none of the cards, I can never say, oh, this spread is exactly like the one that I did two weeks ago, last month, a day ago, um, because everyone's message is different and they need to hear it in a different way. So I feel like the Oracle just adds a touch of um, personalization and specification as well. Mm -hmm. So tell me if you were to, if there are listeners right now whose interests are piqued that they want to get uh, involved, get their own deck or a book about tarot, what are your recommendations for people who want to dip a toe? Uh, Okay. <laughs> a one uh, Rider Waite Smith tarot deck because the original imagery will allow you to be able to read any other tarot deck's imagery, um, even if it takes you some time to study those, you know, more modern takes on tarot. Uh, if you start with the basics, and I mean the very basics, that will get you very far in reading tarot. For the Oracle, I believe you you can't go wrong. Um, something with words. The more words for you, the better. Um, I like to do crystals, crystal oracle decks. I like to do astrology oracle decks. Um, but when you have more words, I think it gives you more clarity in all ways, unless you are more so of a visual representation. Um, and then you take it from there. And I understand you're crafting your own oracle deck or beginning that process. Can you give us a little teaser, a glimpse of what that looks like? Uh, I am still in the creative process, mm -hmm. putting the deck together, um, getting the correct affirmations that I that I want to have involved with it, which um, helping, you know, the, the fact that I do divination, it helps me to be able to come up with some of the things that I think that would be really impactful and important for someone to hear when shuffling their own cards. Um, but the theme of the deck and the title of the deck is um, the Stoner's Journey Oracle. It's between the Stoner's Journey Oracle or the Stoner's Affirmations. Um, and it is a weed-themed oracle deck that I, I am it. creating. Amazing. Okay, well, you'll have to keep us posted on that for sure. Absolutely. 
Okay, I'm going to squeeze in one more question for you, Afton, if I can. Uh, how do you deal with or even characterize the skepticism you have encountered or even nervousness around? I mean, I'm sure that's more common uh, for people who are getting readings, not knowing what to expect. But how would you characterize either skepticism or people uh, in being endeared <laughs> despite their own uh, fears towards tarot? Well, first, <laughs> fear is a natural thing. Uh, there are so many unknown factors in this world. And I think we all just try to cover or mask our fear with many other different forms of like hate um, and, you know, judgment and looking down on things because we don't understand. Um, but I can say the only way that you will ever know, the only way that you can ever debunk something is through experiencing it. Um, and the famous saying of do it scared anyway, and be, be afraid, sit down with those fears and say, you know, why have I kept myself from, you know, experiencing God in a different way, especially if it comes to religion and it comes to these boundaries that religion can carry sometimes. It's, you know, questioning those and looking to see how you can intertwine your religion with a new way of connecting with that source for yourself. I love that so much. Thank you so much, Afton, for your time today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I, this was amazing. <laughs> You've been hearing from Afton Williams-Jacobs, a.k.a. Monty's Tarot Child. You can find out more information about Afton and how to book a reading on our website at ctpublic.org slash where we live. Coming up, Chelsea Granger is a multidisciplinary artist who co-created an herbology-inspired deck. She joins us after a quick break. You can join the conversation, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. In the U.S., we tend to think of slavery as a Southern thing. Slavery in New England has been intentionally erased. The story we tell is this is family slavery. So it comes off as very benign and not dehumanizing. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. Connecticut's own Jacques Pepin is a culinary icon. When you make a contribution to Connecticut Public today, you can experience a once-in-a-lifetime dinner with the acclaimed PBS chef and author on Monday, May 6th at the gorgeous Oceanfront Madison Beach Hotel in Madison, Connecticut. Sponsored by Isana Plastic Surgery Center and Med Spa and Fuchs Financial. For tickets, visit ctpublic.org slash Pepin. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Katie Pellico. This hour, we're exploring the art of tarot and pulling cards. Tarot decks typically follow the same 78-card breakdown. There are 56 cards of four suits or elements, plus the 22 major arcana cards, which range from the fool to the world. But oracle decks can be any number of cards, any system of symbols. They're truly dealer's choice. One multidisciplinary artist where we live co-created a deck I happen to adore. It's called Dirt Gems. Chelsea Granger joins us now from North Guilford. Chelsea, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Uh, before we focus on your Oracle deck that you uh, co-created, Dirt Gems, I would love to focus a little bit on your broader work as a multidisciplinary artist. Uh, your work is really focused on celebrating life and processing death and grief. Can you talk to me a little bit about 
your your artist statement, I suppose, and how how you developed this. Okay. Yeah. Um, I have been making art since I was a little kid, and it's been the main part of my life for as long as I can remember. But there definitely was a turn in my art making practice after one of my dear friends. I was. 32 and she was 32 when she died. And then a little while after that, um, my mom died suddenly, my mom, Suzanne. Um, and that sort of sent a shock through my life and through my system. And I think on the coming to the other side of that, moving through grief, my, my work really started to focus on death and grief. Mm -hmm. Um, and whether that be paintings or writing, um, yeah, I think that my work became very much about celebrating life, um, sort of singing up all the beauty that's here around us. And then also trying to, trying to include like multiple dimensions into my painting. So I could sort of make visible the invisible. Um, and that was really comforting for me. And I found for a lot of other people, they found a lot of, um, healing in those images. And then along with that, I wrote a book sort of a zine style self-published book um, called So Many Ways to Draw a Ghost. And that really focuses on my own experience with my mom's death and my friend Ruth's death, as well as having contributing writers and artists. That's awesome. And, you know, kudos to you for kind of paying forward your own processing through your artistic process. It's just really beautiful, the work you do. Um, And transitioning here into the kind of focus of this show, which is uh, unpacking what we mean when we say divination around tarot and oracle deck use uh, in our state. How did you get into uh, either oracle decks? I understand you read tarot uh, a smidgen. How how did that all kind of unfold and lead you to co-creating Dirt Gems? Yeah, I'd say um, I definitely only read for myself and pretty minimally. Mm -hmm. Um, And it that my answer for that ties right back into the last answer, which is that when I was in like the deepest part of grief around my mom's death, um, I did a residency somewhere. And at the residency, they had a, an Oracle deck and just like grasping at anything to help me feel better. I started picking cards and was just blown away by this experience of having beautiful imagery, you know, shuffling through this deck, having a beautiful image and then having writing from the person who had made it that sort of spoke um, this one was made by a, um, a Jewish artist and my mom is Jewish. I'm Jewish. So it tapped into that connection and it was also connected to the moon. It was pretty simple, but I just found that the messages felt like they were connecting me to my mom, connecting me to myself, taking me out of a stuck place. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It, I don't think that I fully understand what was happening, but it felt really special. How would you distinguish? I mean, we know that tarot decks follow this kind of rote formula with the uh, major arcana cards and the four suits. Um, how do you distinguish tarot from oracle decks, if at all, in their in your use of them or in general? Yeah, I mean, I think tarot has such a um, beautiful, rich history. And I'm not an expert at all on tarot. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll just say that up front. I, I feel like I more like play around with it mm-hmm. um, or it feels special in these small ways. So I'm not, I don't have a good um, grasp on the history, but I would say an Oracle deck is sort of, it can be rooted in anything it wants. There's no, it's not tied to a certain history or certain parameters or structure. Um, so you just sort of get to make it up instead mm-hmm. of um, being connected to a different lineage. 
And being freed up uh, in creating an Oracle deck, tell me a little bit about where plants and herbology uh, come in, because this deck is just stunning. I mean, I have it right next to me here. The illustrations are beautiful, but we have things like uh, licorice, mugwort, gumweed, dogwood, echinacea. Uh, tell me a little bit about how plant, why plants became the, the system and the history to draw on, as it were. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I lived in Western Mass. I grew up in Massachusetts and lived in Western Mass for most of my life. And when the deck first came into being, the idea of it, um, it was a friend and I, I was sort of surrounded by plant people, whether they were farmers or herbalists or um, doing plant conservation. And the woman, the, my dear friend, Anne Louise Burdett, who I made the deck with, um, is an herbalist and does plant conservation. Um, and so she had her own deep connection to plants. Um, that she, that was part of her life professionally and personally. And then for myself, I, you know, I'm a kid, I grew up in the woods. I'm very connected to plants just in my own way, not so much formally, but a, a like strong love and appreciation. Um, I had a friend, I worked at a bar and I had a friend who, she was an herbalist and I took a class with her. So I have very rudimentary knowledge um, of the medicinal qualities of the plants, but I feel like I have my own relationship with them that mm -hmm. I've just tended through the years. But I think the friend Annie and I, and I think we both were drawn to these different card decks, just in the beauty and richness of the images. Mm -hmm. um, and then her as a writer and just wanting to collaborate on a project. Um, mm -hmm. So it's funny how vague it feels, but it, it just felt like it came into being in a very natural way. That's beautiful and seems fitting, you know, <laughs> organic. Uh, yes, origin very story. Much so. Love that. Um, well, I'd love to ask if you have any uh, like standout experiences using the deck, either on you know pulling your own cards or even just in the process of illustrating it. Some favorites. We'll get into more what you drew on for inspiration. But yeah. with any any unique uh, moments that you've had with the deck. I mean, I think in making it, it was such a beautiful experience. I the way we would work, Annie and I, is that she would do sort of a set of writing. There's I think 65 cards and she would send me maybe 12 pieces of writing at once. And I would sit down and read the writing and I would print it out. So I'd have an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper with a printout of her writing. And I just would read it and I would just write notes or draw any symbols that came to mind from, from reading her writing. And then those sort of became the sketches. Um, and it just happened in such a natural, beautiful way. Like right now, I still can't imagine painting 65 cards. Mm -hmm. Like it still seems shocking to me that I did it. Um, and so it just feels like they very much, not that they were, you know, sometimes saying the word channeled mm -hmm. feels confusing to me, but it does feel like something was helping me make these images. Mm -hmm. um, and as for favorites, I love mugwort. Mm -hmm. I love valerian. I love Iris. My middle name is Iris. So that one was fun. Um, I don't know. I have, I definitely have a few favorites. There's some that I really don't love. There's some that I feel far more connected to. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, those are a few of my favorites. Definitely. They're all stunning, I have to say. Um, I I'm curious, Chelsea, uh, whether thinking about tarot or your oracle decks, how do you respond to the term divination? I find that generally readers, whether they do it personally or professionally, they don't really identify with the term uh, as descriptive of their practice insofar as, you know, we're not necessarily fortune telling here, but maybe meeting the cards in a different kind of conversation. So what's what's your response to that term? Yeah, 
Um, I think that's a great question. I think that my relationship, I think like when I pull cards for myself and for me, the practice, um, it's not an everyday thing. Sometimes it is when I've been having a really hard time in life, I find that I pull cards more. And for me, it's just the like pulling one card just at the start of the day, I have a writing practice. Um, from the book artist way, I do morning pages. So three, three pages of, um, stream of consciousness writing. And before I will do the writing, I'll pull one card. And I just find that it's a beautiful way to tap into something outside of myself. You know, I think we can get so in our own worlds and our own heads and to pick a card that whether like a symbol of like a chain or a snake or, you know, whatever comes up that can speak. So it's the symbol. And then there's whoever is putting the, the project together, whatever the writing that goes along with it. And I just find that there's something that is um, connecting me to something larger than myself or outside myself um, in a way that, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure how I connect to that word. It's funny. Mm-hmm. I mean, just as you're talking, I'm thinking about how reading tarot, it almost offers or induces a moment of not knowing for once, of saying, maybe I don't know everything and and that beautiful letting go and letting the universe or whatever give you something new something beyond yeah. what you can reason yeah. through exactly yeah it feels like some kind of some kind of gift right the same way if you're like having a moment in your life and the like bird or the butterfly or the rainbow shows up and you feel like there's some sign or something like larger than you it feels a little bit like that for me and then sometimes the butterfly will show up in the cards and remind yeah, you that you didn't yes. properly take note of the real one. So that was your grandma. Just kidding. Exactly. <laughs> um, love it. So tell me a uh, final question for you here, uh, Chelsea. What feelings do you hope to evoke through uh, Dirt Gems? And, you know, if there were a kind of like informal user manual for it, what are your hopes for the deck? Um, I think that my hopes would be, I mean, Definitely adding some, I hope that the cards, the beauty of the cards can bring a like vibrant um, sort of richness to when you pull one, just adding a little bit of beauty to the day. And then I'd say just, I mean, connecting any, any possibility to connect into the plant world, to have these relationships with plants that we remember them and honor them and can see them in new ways or old ways um, feels really important to sort of a a slowing down and a noticing. Um, Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, Chelsea. It's been so lovely speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Chelsea Granger, a multidisciplinary artist from North Guilford. You can find more information about Chelsea and see images of the Dirt Gems deck on our website at ctpublic.org slash where we live. I'm Katie Pellico. I produced today's show with help from Katie Talarski and Catherine Shen. Our technical producer is also Kat, Kat Pastor. (laughs) Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app, and thank you for listening.